honor of introducing someone who probably needs no introduction for the people in this room and the people in our state. But I'm going to do it anyway because this video will become a part of the archives that will uh, remain in history as a record of the contributions of Representative Jim Wayne. Representative Jim Wayne retired in 2018 after representing the 35th district in Louisville in the Kentucky State House for 27 years. 27 years. In Frankfurt, he was a leading voice on social justice issues such as affordable housing, victim protection, tax reform, fairness laws, mountaintop removal, and the death penalty, among others. Representative Wayne is also a licensed clinical social worker, practicing psychotherapist, and founder of the Wayne Corporation, a practice that provides employee assistance to over 80 corporations and unions. In 2015, he founded the Wayne Institute, which offers an intensive one-year advanced psychotherapy certificate program that is tailored for working professionals. Representative Wayne holds an MSW degree from Smith College and an MA in Theology from Maryville School of Theology in New York. He's also a graduate of Spalding University, where he earned an MFA in fiction in 2012, and he received an honorary doctorate for public service in 2018 from Spalding University. Representative Wayne has written for Commonweal, America, National Catholic Reporter, and Catholic Worker, and he published his first novel, The Unfinished Man, in 2016. As social workers, we have a unique perspective among helping professionals in that we consider people in the context of their environment, targeting our work for change precisely where the problem is located. We're trained to work at the individual, group, organizational, and societal levels. We call that micro, meso, and macro practice. Representative Wayne is one of those rare individuals who excels in all three. Social workers work for justice and equity. In many ways and in many settings, Representative Wayne has spoken truth to power without raising his voice. He seeks and creates common ground and shared progress. One of my favorite memories is uh, I was teaching a, a negotiation mediation class at UofL and he came and spoke about finding common ground across the aisle in Frankfurt. Social workers leverage limited resources to create big results. Representative Wayne has done this repeatedly, founding a clinical practice so that he could employ other clinicians, training social workers nationwide in cutting-edge practices, dividing his time between Louisville and Frankfurt so that he could create and change policies that affect thousands, and now passing on the artifacts of his successful career so that others can continue the work that he started. I know Representative Wayne as Jim. I have witnessed his love for his family, his enthusiasm as a lifelong learner, his creativity, his authentic spiritual practice, and his personal and interpersonal compassion. Many in this room have stories of how Representative Wayne touched and changed their lives. My story was shared recently on Spalding's blog, which I hope you will check out for more information about the archives. And in the 1990s, as a part of an MSW policy class assignment, I drove to Frankfurt 
And they got out boxes for me so that I could explore documentation of the years-long process that resulted in the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which continues to provide affordable housing for low-income folks in our state. My passion for housing justice, macro practice, and political action has continued to grow since that day. So I am delighted that Representative Wayne's gift of his papers to Spalding University's archives will make them much more easily accessible to students and social workers everywhere. He's given us a roadmap and a user manual. Let's commit to continuing his work. Representative Jim Wayne. Good evening. Uh, Dr. Deck, your words are generous. And uh, Ms. Culver, your words are generous also. Thank you both very much. Uh, I also want to thank several people who have made the transition of all the documents, uh, materials uh, to Spalding possible. Uh, the uh, previous librarian here, Tony Hopkins, and um, John McKee, who's a librarian at the Legislative Research Commission at Frankfurt. Jennifer Lowry, who is my secretary in Frankfurt, who went through all the, the files uh, in my office that gleaned what was necessary to be transferred and arranged for the transfer um, to be done here. Uh, Rob Weber, who is with the Public Information Office in, in uh, Frankfurt, who uh, was able to go back all the decades and, and pick out everything that the Public Information Office offered. Uh, Shannon Cameron and Seth Cohen here at Spalding. And of course, my wife, Debbie, who helped me lug some boxes to the uh, loading dock in the library. <laughs> and has uh, always given me much love and encouragement, so thank you. The title of the uh, presentation tonight is Against the Grain, Social Work in a Broken World. On this day, 103 years ago, the world glowed in hope. At 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, the most deadly, destructive conflict in all human history had ended. The war to end all wars, World War I, as we know it now, left in its wake 20 million dead bodies, and 21 million wounded bodies, both uh, wounded people, both mentally and physically. For the first time, more civilians were slaughtered in a war than military personnel. Holding the, the promise that nations would henceforth resolve conflicts without armaments, the League of Nations was to provide a forum for rational discussion of differences enabling countries to live in peace for all generations. Our 21st century retrospective tells us that the hope of 1918 was illusion. Winter nations motivated by control of natural resources to profit their industries, divided the spoils for their own benefit, setting the stage for an even more horrific conflict to begin just 20 years later. 
History is a great teacher if we don't fall asleep in her class. Had the peoples of Europe and North America stayed awake, they would have realized that narrow self-interest, whether of individuals, corporations, or political movements, always results in division and ultimately war. I mentioned this anniversary to keep us all awake in this moment of our cities, our commonwealths, our nations, and our world's histories. We are a severely fractured society in unprecedented ways. First, the existential threat of destruction of life by global warming is real. The two-week climate summit in Glasgow gives little hope that the common good will prevail over self-serving national and corporate concerns. But the long-term work of rehabilitation of our environment will require sustained, disciplined effort for all future generations. Second, despite being out of our daily awareness, the nuclear destruction of the earth remains very real. Nations have stockpiled enough nuclear weapons to incinerate and radiate everything and everyone at the whim of an often erratic at the whims of often erratic heads of state. The international banning of all these weapons, as was done with chemical weapons after World War I, is the only sane option. But who besides Pope Francis is even suggesting this? Third, the international fracture is the scandal of income divider. Half of all the wealth of the world is in the hands of just over 1% of our 7.8 billion residents. Nearly 7.5 million of us will die of hunger this year. Multimillionaires and scandalous expressions of conspicuous consumption waste millions of dollars shooting themselves and their chums into space for a few minutes, while on the streets of our cities and towns below, the dispossessed, the defeated, mentally and physically ill, crawl under highways and in abandoned buildings to find shelter for more than winter chill. Fourth, add racism to the litany of killing divisions among us. The eruption of protests across the world and reactions and the reactions to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among many, gave energy to the cause of bridging our racial chasms. The long history of domination of one race, tribe, nation, ethnic and religious group over another has no place in a world that is shrinking more and more with transportation and technology. Now, as we weigh these and other international and neighbor-to-neighbor -neighbor divisions and crises, it's easy to be overwhelmed with despair. The world is on a path to imminent self-destruction led by small-minded humans unwilling to look beyond their immediate needs. To say that social workers have the ability to address divisions and selfish fears is an understatement. 
We need to look no further than Jane Addams to understand our history is full of skilled, passionate, intelligent people who have reshaped public policy for public good from the halls of Congress. And I think of Senator Barbara Mikowski, social worker from Maryland, uh, Congressman Ron Dellums, Congressman from California, who was like the AOC of his day. And also think of the cabinet room of the White House, where Secretary Harry Hopkins, a social worker, was not only the Secretary of Commerce, but he was in charge of the Public Works Administration during the New Deal. Part of the education and training of social workers is understanding how policy is made and how to influence its making. Many young social work students and practitioners are familiar with the works of Bruce Jansen and Jessica Ritter in explaining the necessary tools to be effective voices for those on the margins, those that are speechless in their suffering. Jansen defines uh, social policy as a collective strategy that presents and addresses social problems a definition that is very similar to the English social policy theorist, Richard Titmuss. But nearly 35 years ago, Epstein, Speck, and Courtney accused the profession of neglecting to address the suffering of the marginalized populations in favor of serving the middle and upper classes with popular mental health services. And as far back as 1945, Saul Alinsky, the renowned community organizer, stated this about social workers. They come to the people of the slums not to help them rebel and fight their way out of the muck. Most social work does not even reach the submerged classes. Social work is largely a middle-class activity guided by middle-class psychology. In the rare instances where it reaches the slum dwellers, it seeks to get them adjusted to their environment so they will live in the hell and like it. A higher form of treason would be difficult to conceive. Not exactly encouraging words. But the observations of the profession's critics are valid in some ways. Other major professions, physicians, lawyers, artists, engineers, could be accused of compromising their commitment to the common good in favor of a comfortable, self-serving career, serving at middle and upper classes, much like some social workers. I consider it more important today to face social works critics in light of the crises that I have outlined as today's crises, rather than those of 25 or 30 years ago or even 45 years ago. Um, as I just stated with these critics. My thesis is that unless social workers take seriously their vocation, as clearly outlined in the profession's code of ethics, of addressing the needs of people in their environment, we continue to contribute to the divisions and destructions promised by our current crises, instead of prophetically pushing against the forces of fear, selfishness, libertarianism, and greed. It is possible to define problems, develop strategies to correct them, and to build powerful coalitions to achieve results. Now I will offer three examples from my time as state representative for 28 years on how this has been 
tried. Two were partial successes. One, I'll give you a teaser, was a failure. The week after I was sworn to office in January of 1991, I received a handwritten letter, now in the archives of the library, from Mrs. Jeanette Luzzi, who lived in a small home in the working class neighborhood called Ashton Adair. It's located between the Louisville Airport and the state fairgrounds. And if you didn't know it was there, you, know, you wouldn't pass by it and recognize it was there unless you knew it. She was, in a, she was astute enough to know that the proposed new expanded railways at the airport planned to meet the needs of the International UPS Corporation meant that her home and dozens of her neighbors' homes would be subject to the roars and air pollution of jumbo cargo jets taking off and landing at all hours of the day and night. In the letter, she asked me to help her and her friends to convince the government to buy their homes at fair prices so they could all move away. Were they to sell their homes privately, they would do so at heavily deflated prices, leaving them strapped to find new residences elsewhere. And of course, they would be deflated because of the circumstances caused by the government and the corporation. My immediate response was to meet Mrs. Lessie, as a good social worker, um, and some of her neighbors in their homes to understand their environment, their proximity to the airport, and to hear their concerns and their fears. With time, I came to understand these people felt powerless to change what was about to befall them. Little did they realize how much power they possessed once they were organized and strategically worked to took, take on corporate and government officials who had overlooked the harsh impact of their plans. And by the way, these plans were all developed by the power elite of our city behind closed doors. So they were overlooking these folks and what I would consider economically fragile citizens in our city. Now, knowing the ways of government and armed with the core values of respect for individual and the common good, I worked with, guided, and learned from Mrs. Leslie and her community. I suggested they incorporate as a neighborhood association, recruit a pro bono attorney from a powerful downtown law firm, form a political strategy, and begin the process of changing what was about to befall them. They learned quickly to be media savvy before there was an internet or social media. They held rallies in the nearby church, protesting with placards at the fair board and air board meetings and testifying in Frankfurt. Once at a fair board meeting, the chairman refused to hear the citizens' testimony and asking that the fair board work with Frankfurt to buy their neighborhood. The neighborhood leaders were smart enough to show up at the meeting with written testimony, hand-painted signs, and a flock of journalists from the Courier Journal and several TV stations, and those journalists had cameras in hand. When the chairman, a wealthy president of a large bank in town, still refused their entry, the neighbors then refused to leave and entered the meeting, citing the state's open meetings. The chairman, fuming, sat in silence 
as the demands of the people were heard by the board. Now in time, the airport and the fairground officials worked out a deal with the state. It took a lot of negotiation on our part to buy every home, business, and church in Ashton Adair at a just price and to pay the people's relocation expenses. As word spread of Ashton Adair's successes, the neighbors to the east and south of the huge airport, also in my district, demanded similar justice. Soon, new voices were heard by incorporating these neighborhoods and including, including the small suburban working class and poor cities nearby. Now, as more, as more once powerless people sprang into action, I proposed in 1995, gathering all the organizations together and the small cities into the Airport Neighbors Alliance, which still exists today to protect, to protect the remaining neighborhoods around the airport that uh, we call now Muhammad Ali Airport. Um, they also, this group meets regularly and they work with the airport to make sure that the flight patterns are correct and the, the airplanes stay on course and they work with the federal government to make sure all of the long-term planning for the airport is, uh, is done in cooperation with the neighbors. As a sidebar, we, we found out the Air Board would have executive sessions and have uh, plots behind the closed doors to decide how they were gonna handle this ruckus. Well, we got fed up with that. So I said, why don't we have the governor appoint someone from the Airport Neighbors Alliance to the airport. So the Air, Airport Neighbors Alliance would have always a representation and that we would always know what's going on at the airport. Um, it passed the House and it was over in the Senate. On the day that it was to pass in the Senate, the uh, Air Board, behind closed doors, I guess, uh, voted a resolution condemning the legislation. Um, that's how, that's the heaviness of their hubris. Um, but the legislation passed, the governor signed it, and the governor then assigned uh, someone from the Airport Neighbors Alliance to be on the board. That's what we call power. Um, in, in time, um, the things did work out. And in the end, over 100, uh, 10, over 10,000 people were relocated with the persistent efforts of ordinary people patiently and strategically working together to protect themselves and their vulnerable families. The second example of advancing social justice is the development of the Kentucky Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which Stacy had mentioned earlier. I didn't know you were going to say anything about that. In my first legislative session, I co-sponsored the bill to establish this fund, which would make money available to nonprofits and local governments to build and rehabilitate much-needed homes for Kentucky's poorest citizens. This was in 1992. There was a little interest in passing the legislation among legislative leaders, but perhaps to be nice to two freshman legislators, Ruth Ann Palumbo from Lexington and myself, who were sponsoring the bill, and because it was a shell bill, meaning it didn't have any money, we just set up a legal uh, structure, uh, the legislation passed and was signed by Governor Brandon Jones, who was in one of the pictures that you showed. And she, by the way, he was with uh, one of the leaders of the Ashton Adair uh, neighborhood in that picture, which was really nice. Uh, when the governor's wife, First Lady Libby Jones, learned of the new law, 
and the absence of funding, she unilaterally jumpstarted the program by stripping the annual governor's derby breakfast at the executive mansion and reallocating the budgeted $200,000 for two years as seed money for the new program. The festive lavish breakfast on Derby morning in 1991 became continental buffets with Danish and coffee in 1992 and thereafter. In time, housing advocates researched creative ways to channel dollars into the trust fund. Dr. Deck was part of that, I'm sure. Uh, in the mid-1990s, we put language in the state budget for unclaimed lottery winnings to go to the housing. At once, the program, other program advocates, like the key scholarship promoters, uh, coveted that unclaimed lottery money, so we were shut out of that. We also tried to put line items in the biennial budgets, but with minimal success. Finally, at the end of the last century, we decided to push for a real estate transfer recording fee to be dedicated to housing. Session after session, we testified and lobbied for this new statute, which would stabilize funding indefinitely for nonprofits and like Habitat for Humanity, New Directions here in Louisville, Frontier Housing in Eastern Kentucky, so that they could know what money is available and do long-term planning. The content of our, the context of our efforts is very important to understand because we don't always see injustices in the system. Every middle-class and wealthy American who holds a mortgage receives welfare for their homes. This is the government giving them money to purchase the largest investment in most cases that they will ever make. These homeowners also deduct from their taxable income local property taxes paid each year, which is another hidden subsidy for their home. If, however, you are a poor renter living in an apartment or a house, you receive no government assistance for your home unless you're one of the lucky ones who receive help from programs like Section 8. The pre-pandemic Louisville Housing Needs Assessment Study in February of 2019 estimated that 46% of families living below the poverty line in Louisville need 31,400 units. And this would cost this metropolitan area $3.5 billion. That's how, that's how drastic uh, separation is. Now, since the New Deal in the 1930s, we have, through laws promoted by the real estate and mortgage banking industries, created a discriminating system that keeps the poor poor and subsidizes the wealth building of everyone else. As a, slight, as a slight counterbalance, affordable housing advocates have launched housing initiatives to provide affordable home ownership, like the Habitat programs, or built and managed affordable re rental houses, houses and apartments. Now, these are proven ways to write an unjust national and state housing policies. These are the programs that the Affordable Housing Trust Fund is designated, is designed to bolster. Now, once legislators in the early 2000s had been successful in building some affordable housing units with this uh, meager trust fund in their districts, and we wisely had all of them invited to any ribbon cutting for this, these housing units. Uh, they get the local newspaper, the weekly newspaper, and local TV stations to see them. Um, 
So we built out the support over time with the legislators. We still, however, could not get the real estate transfer recording fee passed. This fee would be would put $6 of every real estate transfer in the state into the trust fund. It would be a stable funding. It would not be approved by the legislature biannually. It would just be part of the statute. And it would work in boom times when there were a lot of real estate being sold and in recession times when a lot of real estate's being repossessed because those are transferred. So it was re recession proof. So in 2004, this is now 12 years later after the inception of the trust fund legislation, citizens of Louisville organized and united together, which is called CLOUT, you may know of CLOUT, put affordable housing at the top of their list for direct action by launching what was called the Open the Door campaign. So hundreds then of church members flooded Frankfurt during that year's legislative session to demand passage of the real estate transfer fee bill. Dressed in bright yellow t-shirts with Open the Door blazing across their backs, these ordinary citizens um, were like the Calvary reinforcements needed for the weary advocates who had for 14, for 12 years pleaded with lawmakers to find a steady source of funding for low-income housing for the very, very poor in our state. With great effort, the bill passed the House, but stalled in the Senate. One of our major secret allies was a well-respected budget expert who worked on the staff of the Appropriations and Revenue Committees. She was with the Senate President David Williams' side as he worked behind closed doors to put the final touches on an entirely different bill that had to do with courthouse fees. She diplomatically convinced him, and it's great to hear her tell this story, uh, to include language in our bill, in a, a larger bill that was the Senate was posed, uh, poised to pass. Um, so we did that. Senator Williams included the language of our bill in the larger bill, which was assured to pass. It did pass and was signed into law. Today, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund then has a steady source of revenue that's resulted in construction and rehabilitation of nearly 14,000 housing units throughout the state. These are the homes for the very poor in every county in our Commonwealth. The success of this small effort in a wide sea of need was due to persistence, coalition building, intelligence, fact gathering, and the tickling of consciences to recognize the severe injustices in our housing policies in this state and in this nation. Housing is a human right. We all need one to survive. We have a long way to go to make this right a reality for millions in our land, as is evidenced by just walking the streets of work. The third and final example on social policy advocacy is tax reform. It is now time for your naps. <laughs> Who gets excited about tax policy? Accountants, maybe. But most of us don't understand taxes and thus ignore them, except when April 15th looms on our calendars. Well, let me try to keep you awake by telling you how fundamental taxes are to addressing injustices. When tax policy favors the wealthy, the gap between the rich and the poor Whites. 
Shallow politicians curry favor by demanding we cut taxes. When this happens, the vulnerable suffer the most because government services, from public schools to clean water to functioning roads and bridges to social services, suffer. So ensuring that we have fair, adequate, flexible ways to tax one another should be paramount in any society. Kentucky, like many states, has a system that is not fair, is not adequate, and is not flexible. By the late 1990s, over 15 different commissions, task force, revenue experts predicted Kentucky would suffer major deficits if we did not reform our outdated, unjust tax laws. Working with Kentucky Center for Economic Policy and the Kentuckians for the Commonwealth in 1999, I proposed a comprehensive tax reform bill to right our Commonwealth's wrongs. The bill increased slightly taxes on the wealthy, lifted the tax burden from the poor, and increased revenues by hundreds of millions of dollars for state, for the state, which, which would avoid the shortfalls that were predicted. We struggled to get a budget committee chairman to even give us a hearing. Finally, late one night, after the committee completed its work, the Appropriations and Revenue Chairman, Representative Harry Moberly from Madison County, looked at me and said, Representative Wayne, he had a kind of a mountain draw. We have a few minutes left. Would you like to bring your people to the table and tell the committee about your bill that you have? Well, I looked around and realized only Democrats remained seated in the committee dais. The Republicans had all gone to the executive mansion to meet with Governor Ernie Fletcher, the first Republican governor in two generations. Well, at the end of our strong testimony about the injustices of our tax system and the remedies that we were proposing, the Republicans had slowly returned to the room. When we concluded the testimony and answered the Democratic legislators' questions, the chairman said, thank you, we will now adjourn. Well, Representative Scott Breekman of Louisville spoke up and said, well, we would like to rebut the arguments our group, that our group had made. I'm sorry, said Chairman Moberly, but you were not here for the discussion. We are adjourned. Republican Brinkman shouted, you mean you let these communists explain their wild ideas and we don't get to respond? No, the chairman said with a grin, meeting adjourned. Unfortunately, Despite this dramatic encounter, this was the only time the bill got a full hearing. Special interest groups who had filled the campaign coffers of Democrats and Republicans had learned on, leaned on legislative leaders to never give our bill a committee, a vote in a committee, let alone on the House floor. So from 1999 to 2018, I kept introducing the bill every year. Our coalition, our coalition of advocates did swell. But in 2016, conservative pro-wealthy Republicans had total control of the executive and legislative branches in Franklin. They passed bills that made our tax system even more unjust and inadequate. The results we are living with today, a failing retirement system, failing public schools with poorly paid staff, increased college tuition for community and technical colleges and university students, Social service system with over 600 caseworkers fleeing their jobs due to near poverty wages, 
and unmanageable caseloads, weakened enforcement of environmental laws, and state parks with lodges and facilities neglected and shabby. Now, the Biden pandemic money will temporarily stop the fiscal bleeding, but shortly we will return to a state tax system that cannot serve us, it especially cannot serve the most vulnerable among us. The first two case examples I've given tonight prove to be partial successes. 10,000 human beings, if they survived the crisis with government and corporate elites, for some had committed suicide or died from stressful from the stressful uncertainty awaiting the airport relocation. They are in new, quieter homes. Nearly 14,000 individuals are in cleaner, safer, affordable homes due to the Affordable Housing Trust. But the efforts behind tax reform have been a failure. An analysis of these mixed results leads us to ask more penetrating questions that few, few dare to consider. Until we address the fundamental injustice of the capitalist economic system, will not all our advocacy efforts for the marginalized be just nibbling around the edges of injustice? They're doing much good, yes, but still falling far short of what we as a society are capable of achieving. Reading the experts' research papers and books um, about how to be effective policy advocates is most valuable in lifting some of the multiple burdens carried by those with limited cognitive abilities, those with mental and physical illnesses, those who have been shortchanged in life growing up in homes with violence, addictions, chaos, failed schools, and filth. But in analyzing our economic system over my 30 years in Washington and Frankfurt, I'm convinced that those served by social workers are in a boxing ring with two hands tied behind their backs, facing a fit, well-trained opponent with horseshoes hidden in their gloves. Corporations and fi the financial elite now know how to work government and the economic system to their advantage, as they have done since the nation's inception. Today we have, with unlimited secret political campaign contributions, legalized bribery, in the words of Wendell Berry's late brother, John Berry, who was a state senator and a great mentor to me. These contributions to Kentucky House and Senate leaders contaminate the judgments of these elected officials in order to block or promote bills that maintain the structural legal advantages of corporations and the rich. Now, unless this resulting cancer is radiated, chemically destroyed, or surgically removed, democracy is in peril. The proper role of the democratically elected government is to harness capitalism's injustices and greed with laws, regulations, and the promotion of workers' voices and workers-owned workplaces, as have been proven so successful in the Basque region of Spain over the last 70 years. This is going against the grain of America. It is the task of social workers to lead this effort, not to be satisfied with gradualism and temporary fixes. The source of so much misery and injustice is in the hearts that is in the hearts of insecure people who turn to greed to fill their emptiness. 
If you doubt one minute that insecurity and greed are not at the root of our social ills, look at the struggle our world is having with global climate destruction. We know what is happening. We know the solutions and we know it will all get worse and destroy us unless we act now. But when a senator in charge of the American environmental policy is protecting his half a million dollar a year profit from his West Virginia coal company and receiving literally millions of dollars in re-election campaign contribution from the fossil fuel industries, something is dramatically wrong with our systems of economics and governance. In conclusion, I return to 1918 and the end of World War I. Jane Addams, the most notable social of social workers, was raised in a Quaker home and carried that religious tradition's pacifism into her adulthood. When World War I broke out in 1914, she attempted to negotiate peace on the international stage. Failing that, and with the U.S. entry into the European War in 1917, she spoke out against the war and against, against much and, and received much criticism from the dominant culture. As she had done in supporting striking workers in the violent labor dispute with the Poland Rail Company in 1896, and as she would do in fighting sexism, racism, and inequality, she faced harsh criticism and financial threats to the running of her whole house in Chicago. As Jonathan Henson has written, she, along with contemporaries like William James, John Dewey, Eugene Debs, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Louisville's own Louis Brandeis, repudiate acquisitive individualism and laissez-faire economics, delineating a model citizenship in, that encourages Americans to embrace a social democratic ethic that reflects the interconnectedness and mutual, mutually dependent nature of life in the modern world. Its results would be to secure the blessings of liberty and property by ensuring their universal distribution. This is a challenge to all forms of discrimination, whether by sex, race, or economics. Louise Knight, in her work, Citizen Jane Addams and the Struggle for Democracy, calls Addams a pragmatic radical who promoted village kindness that challenges an economic system that finds single mothers holding down two or three jobs at a time, struggling to balance their budgets with being emotionally available to their children. This filthy, rotten system, as activist Dorothy Day once said, every day is working against these mothers and billions of others similarly marginalized. Timid, compromised lives of safe social workers need a conversion of heart. We need bold, intelligent, strategic, prophetic voices in the halls of government, in our neighborhoods, in our therapy rooms, in cities, in villages, in factories, and schools, calling us to radically alter the rules in favor of justice and protection of our Mother Earth. This is difficult, challenging work. We will face failure and few immediate successes, but we must sustain one another with compassion. We must sustain ourselves with a disciplined spiritual life rooted in daily periods of extended silence, letting our highest ideals be nurtured, be nurtured by a higher power. Together we will, in the course of the long struggle, heal our broken world.
This will not be fully realized in our lifetimes, but the contributions we make in our brief years will add to the efforts of many others that we will never know. To ensure goodness wins over evil is our goal. For goodness carries with it an infinite power that is yet to be unleashed across this land and the entire world. You okay with questions? If sure. You them? Absolutely. All right. So let's open it up for questions. I'm going to. I don't know if people in the chat room maybe have a question. Yeah, let's see. Let's have a comment or question. You can, you can rebut anything I said. It's okay. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm used to people. Anybody have a comment or question? There's one in the back. Okay, yes. Uh, hello, I enjoyed it. I'm going to have a speech, but I enjoyed it. Thank you for that. Um, it's very education for me. Yeah, I just Wow, that's a great question. And can you repeat the gist of the question for the people? Yes, the, the, the question uh, is what shaped my uh, values, my mission in life? Um, well, I think um, we were two women. Uh, uh, my grandmother. Um, they were compassionate people. Um, my grandmother um, was poor, uh, very undereducated, um, a faith-filled woman. She lived on a farm uh, that they moved to during the Depression, uh, and it was a subsistence farm. Her neighbors around her, she knew were poorer than she was, at least she felt they were. And I remember taking um, some uh, milk from one of her cows um, to a family that lived way in the back, off the back road, in a little shack. They had a number of children there. And she said, take that over to the side bottoms. Um, and it, that kind of compassion like, sticks with the child. And then my mother was a nurse. She uh, was educated here at Nazareth College because she went to the St. Joseph Infirmary uh, School of Nursing on Eastern Parkway and they would come here for their science classes at the old Nazareth College. But she would come home from the hospital and share stories of, heal, of caring for the sick and the dying. Um, and of course she reflected that uh, compassion I think in her own life every day too. So I would say those two faith-filled women, so they gave me the gift of faith and gave me the, the understanding of what compassion is. Is that, is that helpful? Yes, um, uh, the, uh, never forget what Sigmund Freud is supposed to have said, uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Mm -hmm. yes. Thank you, Representative William Peter. 
your lecture. You didn't say much about healthcare, mm -hmm. and I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the burden, the obligation for just about everybody, including even the middle classes, that increasing percentage of healthcare costs are a drain on everybody in terms of trying to make it in the world. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on legislative activity you were engaged in and your thoughts about what's the answer with the U.S. healthcare system. That's an excellent question. The question for the people that didn't hear it through the mic is, is what about health care as one of the major issues of our time also? And you're right, I could have included that, I guess, if the, under the umbrella of, of what this poor struggle with, for sure. Um, but health care is a human right, like housing is a human right. Everyone needs it. Uh, we all need it. So it should be universally available. In Kentucky, under the two governors Bashir, we've really expanded healthcare considerably um, by executive order um, because of the uh, way the Obamacare is set up. So we've had um, you know hundreds of thousands join the uh, the roles of insurance here uh, under expanding Medicaid. But I will say, in the early '90s, under under Burton Jones, this was before um, Hillary Clinton undertook her initiative and the first term of Bill Clinton uh, to, uh, to set up a healthcare system nationally. Governor Jones was ahead of her. Uh, he, was, he was quite a visionary. And that was one of his top things that he wanted to do. Uh, and he did do it. We, we got something passed. Um, it was pretty good for, for that time in history. And I was one of the real advocates of that. Uh, what happened subsequently is that the erosion um, of that law by uh, insurance companies primarily, um, and other forces. Uh, the lobbying forces in Frankfurt are incredible. Uh, the wealthy, I mean, people do not see that, but they are amazing how powerful and skilled they are in protecting the wealthy and the corporations. And that's what happened. It was, it was dismantled piece by piece. Um, and then it, it didn't really, we didn't really recover from that or you know, make them make, uh, fill that gap in until um, the first governor of Bashir, by executive order, expanded Medicare. But I'm one for the single, single expanded Medicare is what we need in this nation. Um, you know, the, the forces of greed, including the ones here in this city, you know, because we have a major employer in this city that is benefiting uh, from uh, the way the system is right now. But those forces are very strong. They have very powerful lobbyists and they have very deep pockets. To, to get out money for politicians to fill their campaign coffers. So it's, again, that's part of the system I tried to describe. Thank you. But thanks for that question. Yeah. Yes. Um, how do you think legislators and legislation would change if like, everyone had the lens of social work? The question is how would uh, legislation and social policy, is that right, uh, change if everyone had the lens of social work? My goodness, it would be it would be transformative for the whole culture. <laughs> it really would. <coughs> Some, excuse me. <coughs> Sometimes it's difficult <coughs> for people who are not in the social work community or in the helping professions uh, <coughs> to understand that how strong the forces are out there that are uh, forces of of gathering. I would say people who want to acquire whether it's money, property, power, prestige, whatever how powerful those forces are as contrasted with the forces of compassion, 
and justice. Um, but yes, it would be transformative if the uh, if the code of ethics and our our value system was shared by was shared universally. That's a great question. Thanks, Jim. We have a question from online. How did you? Stay motivated in light of the overwhelming political maneuvering that supports capitalism over the human rights of people. How did you stay motivated? Well, you're looking at one of the white places, uh, one of the people that helped me stay focused. Uh, did, did, let me repeat that question. Possibly. Well, okay. I think they can see it actually. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, one of the one of the people that helped me sustain myself. Uh, it was sitting right here, my wife Debbie. I mean, because uh, after a day in of Frankfurt, and she would hear the war stories of being beat up in Frankfurt, <laughs> and uh, and uh, who was trying to uh, cast aspersions on me or the ideas that I provide. Um, we could sit across the, the table from each other at uh, the dinner, and uh, she would actually listen to my war stories, and and uh, and just listening means a lot. Um, so that that's uh, I want to obviously attribute much of sustenance I got to her. Um, I think the other thing that I, I think I try to reach out to a community of people that are supportive, and I um, and some of these people are the advocates for justice in Frankfurt, uh, like the Kentuckians for the Commonwealth, um, the uh, Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, pe um, people of uh, the Kentucky Resources Council, people like Tom Fitzgerald from that group, Jason Bailey from um, Kentucky uh, Center for Economic Policy. Um, and the multiple um, citizen leaders and Kentuckians for the Commonwealth. These and other groups, uh, you know, when you, when you bond with these people, we're all working together, it's, it's very sustaining. We, you need a community to do this. It's not done solo, uh, never. And, uh, and so that was very helpful. Um, and I think, you know, personally, you know, I, I belong to uh, a good faith community. I have a good support group with a peer men who share values. And, um, and I, I think it's very important, as I mentioned there, to have a, a spiritual life in this work. Otherwise, you just burn out and become cynical, um, unless you really center yourself in, in who you are, and what's important, and what your beliefs are. Does that answer? That question was from Terry Northcutt, so thanks, Terry. Oh, <laughs> Dr. Terry Northcutt is from Loyola University. Thank you, Terry. Yes, great. Thank you for your talk. I disagree with nothing. <laughs> I appreciate it. And I also went to those uh, tax reform meetings and thought I could do something before we get done and then realize there's just so much power, so much sadness to wait to happen, nothing's going to happen. So as I'm getting older, I'm thinking instead of fighting causes, how do we get more people with compassion? It doesn't matter the specific issues, but we need more people that are willing to help people get elected to office as opposed to having legal or business background. So is that something, how do we do that now? Well, that's a good question, Greg. The question is, how do we get more people with compassion elected to office? Is that a good summary? Uh, and I think that's a good question. I think it does happen, in, you know, it fits and spurts that you get some people, I can think of some, you know, like uh, Councilwoman George, uh, you know, in our, in our Metro Council, uh, a number of other people in Metro Council, and certainly people like Representative Joni Jenkins, very compassionate woman, faith-filled compassionate woman. Um, and, and so I think that there are people that way, but we need, that are that way, but we need to obviously um, have more people like that in legislative offices. 
and then to support them. You know, you can be in legislative office, but unless the legislator, whether it's in city council, Congress, or Frankfurt, unless they have a coalition to work with, they're going to be like shouting into a hurricane. Um, so it's it's real important to recognize that that we need to support each other once those people get into office. But yeah, recruiting those kind of people, getting them to run, and it, you know, it's so hard. Running for elected office is very, very hard. Now, unless you, it's a fluke and, you know, the stage is set for someone just to walk into a, a vacant seat or something. But, you know, to get out and pound the payments in a legislative, local legislative race in Kentucky, uh, here in Louisville, that, my wife can tell you how many hours are spent, um, you know, on the steps, doorsteps of people. Um, you know, just every free time, every, every moment of free time, you're going to be out there before the election. And it takes a lot of energy, a lot of time, and um, times away from your family and, and uh, those that are important to you that, that sustain you. So, yeah, it's hard. And, and so when you, when you eye someone and say, hey, this is going to be a great candidate, you have to give them a lot of support and as, as much help as possible to get them into office. I'm not talking just financial support. It's, it's emotional support and, and any other type of auxiliary support. That's a good question, and we need to recruit more. I, I think um, we did research, and I think I'm the only MSW, the first MSW to be in Frankfurt, if you can imagine, um, in all the history. Uh, not now, since uh, after I was elected, Paul Bather and Susan Westrom um, both have MSWs. Paul's now gone to his reward, but, um, but you know, it, it's, it, it's been rare for social workers to be in public office in Kentucky. I should say as well, Councilwoman George is a graduate of our MSW ah, program. So, okay. Social worker and a Spalding grad. Yeah. This is probably a good place to stop the formal questions because we have some students who need to go to class. Um, but we'll be here as long as people want to stay and, and chat with you and ask questions. But let's draw for some books. Okay, we're going to have some door prizes. For those that are, uh, 